Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountains by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat battered by the waves was far from the land, for the wind was against them. This is the word of the Lord. Wow. Avril's adding 16 or so sixth graders. You know, if you're the praying type. <laughs> My pray for Pastor Avarilla. Because uh, I don't think you lose very many. So that middle school group is going to be a monster. Yes. Well, again, good to be back. So grateful, Jason, for your sermon last week. So grateful for it. Loved, loved it. Uh, loved the way that you got people talking to one another and, and all that. It was great. And hope we have dozens and dozens in Disciple, although I think you'd rather keep it to two dozen, right? Uh, loved hearing my dad preach. Still my favorite preacher. That's where I learned the Middendorf Shuffle. He can't stand still either. And um, very meaningful and glad that, that each was able to continue this sermon series. Please, please remember, the season of Pentecost is meant to be a season of preparation and training for us. And we have been in the midst of this super summer. And so I have said, okay, well then let's make it a training how to go about doing the super things that God would have us to do. And, and there is some danger in all of that kind of language and thinking, but I still want us to think along those same lines. God is shaping us for something good and big. God is shaping us for something uh, that will then put more and more skin and flesh on this God. God is preparing us, but not without your consent. Are you willing that God would prepare you and me and us for whatever it is that God would have in our future? So a lot of times you can find in these superhero uh, movies, and I found a little short clip here to demonstrate this, what you find when you have these, these team-ups, these, these heroes that get together, they're typically they're getting together and they don't know how to work together at first, and then they get trained to work together so that they can win the battles, right? Like here's from, from the Avengers movie, see if, see if you can remember this scene. How do we look? Well, we're not the 27 Yankees. We got some hitters. They're good. You're not a team. Let's beat him into shape. Avengers! And that's how the movie ends. It ends right there. Does anybody know what he was about to say, though? Avengers? Very nice. No? The symbol's right. That's, uh, that's it. Now, you, you would think, and you'd be right, that what's going to happen here is that these new recruits 
The new Avengers are going to be trained to overcome in conflict and battle. Amen? It's <laughs> a weird place for an amen, isn't it? But, but that's what happens, right? We get, we get these sorts of movies, and in fact, it, it bears out in real life, too. You get people together, and you train them to overcome when it comes to conflict and battle. What would it look like? What kind of movie would it be if they were all gathered and assembled and then trained to wage peace? What would that look like? What, what would it look like to get everybody together and to uh, school them, not in hand-to-hand combat, but school them in the unique fighting style of the Christian, which is to not fight? What would it look like to get people together and train them how to make peace? Some of you are saying, that sounds boring, pass. I'm not sure I'd go watch that movie. Just got back from Africa. I'm not going to dump on you everything that JR and I got into and Chris and all the other teammates who were there. I'm not going to do that today. I am going to, there's going to be sort of a, a, a slow drip because we've got to keep it in front of us. So I don't want to say it all today because we, we've got we've to keep it in front of us. In fact, quick announcement, I don't know what you're doing on Wednesday night, August the 23rd. But I'm going to get as many team members as I can just to kind of go through Uncle John and Uncle JR's and Uncle Chris's and Aunt Debbie's trip to Africa slideshow. If you would like to come and just see what all we got into, we're going to find a room. Just let us know that you're coming. I just want to tell you what all that we're into and that I feel like God is calling us to still. 15 years in, I feel like, Mike, God is still calling us to Africa, but we need to tell the story. So Wednesday night, August 23rd, let us know if you're coming so we know what room to use. If 500 of you say yes, we'll probably have it in here, right? But we'd like to tell those stories. I do want to talk to you about one thing. I, I did get curious about how Zambia became Zambia. Like, what was the Revolutionary War? that took place that resulted in Zambia. And here's the thing, actually didn't know this, but it probably belongs in the same category as the good stories about apartheid and the overcoming of apartheid, and even the orange revolution that happened in Ukraine. Both of those were bloodless revolutions. People made all out commitments to peace. Zambia belongs in that same category. In the late 1880s, The British invaded northern Rhodesia. That's what they would eventually call it. They invaded northern Rhodesia and claimed it as a British colony, though there were some people already living there at the time. They claimed it as a British colony. Now, over a period of time, they did allow for a parliamentary style of government that would allow for some representation of the indigenous peoples. And over a period of time, that representation grew and grew and grew until finally England had to contend with what was now a louder and louder voice clamoring for more and more freedom and liberation. And finally there came along a guy by the name of Kenneth Maunda. Kenneth Maunda knew that there had to be a change, knew that if he did not help lead it peacefully, then there would be violent clamoring for change. And so, in 1958, he went and visited Gandhi in India and was asking questions like, how can we make change but make it peacefully, peacefully? Now, 
It just so happened that during the exact same time, there was another story, another story that had uh, the potential for violent conflict, and sure enough, we saw some violent conflict during the civil rights era around here, but in 1958, in fact, this week will be the 65th anniversary of the Cat Sit-In, Cat's Drugstore here in Oklahoma City. So the exact same time that Kenneth Maunda was studying nonviolent change, peaceful change, we had the cat sit in here, led by Clara Looper and her daughter, that's the one looking over her shoulder right here, Marilyn Looper. You know this story, right? So Clara Looper took these kids away somewhere in the Northeast where they learned how to wage peace. They learned how to wage peace. And then brought them back and said, now where are we going to do all of this? And legend has it that it was Marilyn Looper who said, well, why don't we go to Cat's Drugstore because I actually want to order a hamburger and a Coke. Knowing that they would not be welcome, that became the project. So on August 19, 1958, these kids who, like Kenneth Kaunda, had learned the fine art of peacemaking, went and sat for three days at this counter, and they weren't served until the third day. Now, Jason, here's the thing that's going to blow your mind. One of the people that was sitting there that day, and we'll find her name, Donda West. Yes. Donda West was there that day participating, was the mother of Kanye West. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. All that's free of charge today. All of that is free of charge. It worked. In 1958, they achieved peaceful change. Back to Kenneth Kaunda. Learned these skills, came back, talked about, preached, let's say, these skills all the way around until in 1964, there were so many indigenous people in this parliamentary structure that Britain, to their credit, looked up and said, it's time. We've got to let them go. And so granted them full independence in 1964, and the first thing they did was change the name from Northern Rhodesia to Zambia in honor of the Zambezi River. I thought that was fascinating. Peaceful change. How often do you get to see peaceful revolution? Let me ask a more painful question. How often are Christians involved in peaceful revolution these days? Now, maybe revolution and the talk of rebellion and revolution, but how often are Christians involved in peaceful revolution? It almost feels like it would be impossible these days to achieve peace in the United States, in Oklahoma in Oklahoma City. In order for us to hear a story that's very familiar, and it's already been read to us at least the first three verses, this is in fact the story of Peter walking on top of the water. But in order to make good sense of it, what's going on here, let me say a couple of things. My dad talked about it, and Jason talked about it, the parables are pieces of art pieces of art meant to point beyond the parable itself, beyond the words on the page, to life realities, the ones that you and I bounce off of all the time. But the Gospels, beyond the parables, are still art, or at least artistic. 
I mean, here we're going to hear the story about Jesus walking on the water, and then Simon Peter walking on the water. But the point of the story is not that someday you would have opportunity to walk on top of Lake Hefner. Please don't do that. <laughs> Imagine somebody who cannot swim saying, I am so inspired by Matthew 14. I'm going to call the news agencies. I'm going to call Bryn Felder. I'm going to have the Oklahoma in there. I'm going to have all the news channels there. And they're going to be the copter circling overhead. And I, to the glory of God, and kind of to my own glory too, I'm going to step out of the boat and on top of the water, though I can't swim. You're going to sink like a rock to the bottom. And when we recover your body, we will have a very nice service here for you. If you walk away from this passage scripture saying, maybe I can walk on the water, then you will have made the same fatal mistake that Simon Peter made. Yes, this passage, and yes, the Gospels call us to do very difficult things, very hard things, very hard things. I, I would submit that making and waging peace is actually harder than figuring out a way to walk on top of the water. You gotta keep in mind the context of the story. John the Baptist has been murdered, not just killed, but murdered. There's this occupying force, the Roman Empire, which made puppets out of the, the Israelite kings, and one of those puppets by the name of Herod senselessly killed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And Jesus and the people are devastated. Scripture tells us in the aftermath that Jesus kind of went away. i got to think this through. And sure enough, all the people waiting to be organized to respond. And, and by the way, some of them are ready to respond violently. Jesus had within his own disciple group, remember, a guy by the name of Simon the Zealot. And the Zealots were famous for being ready to fight with swords. To overcome to the glory of God with swords. Jesus invited that guy to be a part of the disciples, and I bet took away his sword. Because he was calling him to something really hard, which was the life of peace. So when all these people gather around Jesus, waiting for their marching orders, Jesus said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit down and let's eat. After this, after this, Jesus sends them all away, still looking for a place and a time to pray. Immediately, <laughs> the disciples who may have been part of the problem, I think there's good evidence in the Gospels that the disciples were at times part of the problem. You do remember that not only was there Simon the Zealot, but there was this guy by the name of Simon Peter who seemed willing in a pinch to take up a little bitty sword. Maybe they're part of the problem. And so Jesus says, why don't you all go chill out? Get into the boat and go to the other side, and I'll just dismiss everybody. Now, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when the evening came, he was there alone, whew, getting his head together. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. So the Sea of Galilee had become sort of dangerous and dark and emblematic of the chaos that was about to wrap itself around the entire Jewish religious community. Now, 
Let, let, let me tell you something. By the time this book would have been written, the Gospel of Matthew, the people of God had already failed as it had to do with the hard work of Christian peacemaking. Hear me say that again. This is important. By the time this gospel was written, the people of God had already seen fit to challenge Rome on military terms. And you know what happened? Rome won. (laughs) Destroyed everything. Destroyed the temple. The Gospel of Matthew is written not just to sort of connect the dots to show us why things and where things and when things went sideways, but hopefully to give us some insight as to how to move forward in a better sort of way. To be Christian is to be odd in this world. The culture Allow your artistic brain to see here that the wind and the waves and the resulting storm, allow your brain to see that as the encroaching culture that threatens our very life and vitality. They were there in the midst of it. They were threatened. The storm was there, threatening the whole thing. They were being tempted toward violence. And they were frightened. Water is always emblematic of chaos, life-threatening kind of chaos. In fact, one of the ways that the Bible talked about, especially in the Old Testament, one of the ways that the Bible talked about the lordship of God was by displaying that God had this giant divine capacity to control everything, even the chaotic waters. Even the chaotic waters. So there's chaos in the waters. God breathes them into order. There's chaotic waters, and yet God overcomes them and makes a path for the people of God to walk through. There's chaotic waters, but God stops, the wa- stops all the waters upstream, and the people of God can walk across. You knew God was God when God could control the chaos of the waters. Psalm 29, my favorite, the throne of God is so sturdy and strong, it can be placed on top of the chaotic waters. Well, you have chaotic waters, chaotic waters that were now threatening the lives of the disciples. And so early in the morning, early in the morning, Jesus came walking toward them on the sea. Okay. What do you do when you look up and you see somebody walking on top of the water, walking towards you, and you think that the, that the waters contain all things scary and ugly and demon, demonic and evil? You look up and you start screaming and saying, I think, I think it's a ghost, I think it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But this is God walking on the waters. What are you learning about Jesus in this year-long pursuit of Jesus? Can I just tell you what what I'm learning as your preacher? I'm impressed that Jesus had arm hair, (laughs) at times skint knees, good days and bad days. In fact, I'm impressed that there are a lot of ways in which I can identify with this Jesus. I think I'm even more impressed that I understand this Jesus to be that God. More human than perhaps I was ready for, and way more divine than I was ready for. As small as me and as giant as the cosmos, this Jesus is that God who can command the waters. They cry out in fear. 
But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, it's a ghost. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. But that could have been translated, and see if this sounds familiar, it doesn't really say, it is I, it really says, I am. Does that sound familiar? Remember when Moses, confronted by the burning bush, and the burning bush says, hey, I want you to go say all these things to Pharaoh and do this impossible thing. Now, Moses, you can't do it, but if you'll go, I can help you to do it. And Moses says, well, who am I going to say is sending me? What's your name, by the way? And the voice says, I am. Jesus here, when they howl in fear, saying, it's a ghost, says, take heart, I am. This Jesus is that God. But Peter, testing him, said, Lord, I'm not sure about this. If it's you, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And so Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. And as long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, y'all, as long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, as long as it was not about Peter, but about Jesus, I don't see anybody taking notes. All right. As long as his eyes were fixed on Jesus, he could do what he was called to do. But according to Scripture here, but when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you don't have very much faith. Why did you doubt? Does everybody remember that the point of this story is not to convince you that you can somehow walk on top of the water? The point of the story is not Simon Peter. The point of this story is the God of the universe we see most clearly in the face of Christ, and it is the Christ who calls. The Christ who calls is the point. And the Christ who calls, calls us to do something difficult. To take a posture in the world that the world, given its wind and waves, may not understand. Watch this, the next couple of verses here. When they got into the boat, rescued Simon Peter and Jesus, ready? The wind ceased, and those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Let me, let me say it again in case we're not getting it. Jesus calls me calls you just as much to a life of difficulty. <laughs> because the thing that we are called to do and to be in this world is so odd and awkward that we will find ourselves having to faithfully resist all the time. 
We'll find ourselves up against situations that will seem to be impossible. And when we don't have our eyes on Jesus and we are sort of navel-gazing or look in the mirror saying, I think I can walk on water like Simon Peter did for this long. Yeah, we're not capable of doing the difficult thing that God calls us to do and to be. But the difficult thing that God calls us to do and to be, to maintain this awkward posture, this awkward Christ-shaped posture in the world, with all of the peacemaking skills that come with it, the difficult thing that we are called to do at home, at work, everywhere you find yourself, the difficult thing is possible so long as we recognize who it is who calls and we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, one of our ancestors by the name of Phineas F. Brzee was famous for saying, nothing to the left, nothing to the right, only Jesus straight ahead, y'all. Maybe he was right. Maybe he was right. This passage is not about walking on top of the water. It's about something harder than that. This passage is about how it is that the God we see reflected in the face of Christ calls us and then resources us to do the very difficult thing that we are called to do and to be. You are meant to learn to wage peace. If you're a teacher, let's go over this again, you're a Christian that happens to be a teacher. You are meant to learn the skills and then apply, implement, embody the skills of Christian conflict and peacemaking. If you're in business, I hope you're doing great. <laughs> and I hope you tithe, right? If you're in business, you're a Christian that happens to be in business. By the way, if it's the other way around, it's not working, right? The Christian part, at least, is not working. If you're, if you're first and foremost a business person that happens to show up in church periodically, it, that's not the Christianity that God dreams for any of us and not you. But if you're a Christian that happens to have a job, a great job, own the work, you are meant to learn the Christian skills of peacemaking, shalom, and you are meant to apply and embody those skills. Oh, John, that's going to be very hard. No, tell me about it. Tell me about it. That's why this story is in Scripture. But so long as you keep your eyes fixed on this Jesus, it might actually work. Read this. One of the commentaries I read the message is not, if he had had enough faith, Simon Peter could have walked on the water. Just as the message to us is not, if we had had enough faith, we could overcome all of our problems in spectacular ways. That interpretation is wrong, in that it identifies faith with spectacular exceptions to the regular, ordinary life of our days, days that are all subject to the laws of physics and biology. And that's wrong because when our fantasies of overcoming this web are shattered by the realities of accident, disease, aging, and circumstance, and we begin to sink, that view encourages us to feel guilty because of our lack of faith. Ever been there? No. 
The Gospels were meant to shape and nourish and resource and encourage the people of God, the body of Christ, to continue the journey marked out for them by Jesus himself. And Jesus recognized that there would be trouble, that the winds and the waves would batter the body of Christ as they battered Christ's own body, just as Jesus would draw, but Jesus, but just as Jesus would draw in the very presence of God to overcome, so also the church is invited each week to share in that same relationship and enjoy the resources Jesus himself enjoyed, the very life and breath and spirit of God. It's not that we're called to walk on top of water. We're called to something better and more difficult And that is to faithfully embody the way of Christ no matter the circumstances. And just as it's impossible for Peter to walk on top of the water given the laws of physics and biology, so also it will be impossible for you or for me or for us to walk the way of Christ without fixing our eyes on the one who makes life and hope and future possible. John sounds great. That was catch, sit in, 50 in 1958. John, that sounds great. That was Zambia in 1964. I don't see that happening much anymore. Well, then you're not paying attention. You hosted a peace summit about a year and a half ago. You hosted it here. A guy came in by the name of Mike McBride with Live Free USA. He was from Oakland. He is from Oakland, California. One of the places that has one of the worst rates of gun violence in the entire nation. I mean, just terrible gun violence. In fact, we're almost as bad as them in Oklahoma City. And that's how bad they are. (laughs) And Mike came and he said, hey, we were able to drop the rate of gun violence in Oakland by 60% in a year. He said this, 80% of your gun violence is perpetrated by 0.5% of the population. That's true. It is a very small percentage of the people who are actually responsible for the biggest majority, prohibitive majority of all the gun violence. And Pastor Mike came, and we had police officers out here in the, in the atrium. We had all of these, these peace activists here in the atrium as well. And we all gathered saying, is there not a better way to go about, can we reduce the rate of gun violence here in Oklahoma City? And we asked Pastor Mike, to relocate here, and you were a part of that effort to try to reduce gun violence in Oklahoma City, and so this happened this week while we were gone. This did. Today is the day where we have a violence interruption program in Oklahoma City. A vibrant community is coming together to show who they really are. Say, I am a peacemaker. Say it again, I am a peacemaker. People don't see so many voices that don't get heard when it comes to the community in that way, unless, you know, uh, there's a shooting. From city to community to religious leaders, the goal is to gather around the table and come up with some solutions. And what we want to do in our work is to get as early in the life of our loved ones and ensure that if they are at risk, if they are a victim, and even if they are on the brink of perpetrating violence, how can we literally intervene, interrupt, and redirect our community members into a life of peace, healing, and justice? It starts with the faces Eastside neighbors see every day. We are taking people from this community, equipping them with the resources 
to really go out and do the things they've already been doing. But it takes a village to fix a large-scale issue. The hardest part in this strategy is not stopping individuals from shooting. The hardest part is getting the collaboration. The Live Free OKC crew is looking for help across the board. Oklahoma City will have a new era where community members, our law enforcement officials, our elected officials, our parole probation community members, our uh, district attorney, um, all of the social services, we're going to forge a, a new partnership that is similar in many other cities to help decrease violence in our communities. I mean, literally, we're going to be, and we get to be a part of it. We're going to have people around the table. We're going to take that 0.5% of the population. It's going to be a long list of names. And we're going to go to each one of those people and say, what do you need to stop doing this? We're not going to try to outgun them. We're going to try to feed them. Y'all. I think it might be harder than walking on water and possible if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Now, Simon Peter will, in two chapters, because he hasn't gotten it, and you can see it because he sank like a rock, and in two chapters, Jesus is going to say to him, after Jesus says, I think I figured out how we're going to do this, I'm going to die. And we're going to make that work. And Simon Peter says, Jesus, you do not get how we do this. We're going to outgun them. And Jesus said, well, why don't you get right behind me, Satan? Later on, Simon Peter will be the one who disowns Jesus. I think it was like three times. But finally, Simon Peter will be the one who finally gets it. And he says, oh... It's not a matter of fighting on the terms of the enemy. It's way more costly than that. And Simon Peter, Simon Peter, Saint Peter, the one who continues to shape our movement to this day, Simon Peter would become the person who would shape our movement to this day, not by outgunning the enemy, but by dying at the hands of the enemy in love. He was crucified. John, are you asking us to love like that? I'm not asking you that. Jesus is asking that of you. And if you say, well, that's difficult, yeah, that's why I keep saying, harder than walking on water. And the only way that the people of God will be able to withstand the culture with all of the winds and the waves and the storms that come with it, the only way we'll be able to withstand all of that and still be able to shape our kids and our people to be people who wage peace is by keeping our eyes locked right here. So if you are helping us today, please help us as we go back to the table to remember who calls us. Heavenly Father, Bless these elements. We need this today, Lord. We need this. If we are going to be people of peace, if we are going to be trained for peace, if we are going to be the kinds of people who can wage peace, it will be because we have kept our eyes fixed on you. So in these moments with little pieces of bread and with the cup, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on you? If you are visiting with us today, we take communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, each week by intention, and I'll explain what that means here in a second.
But here in a moment, I will ask you to stand to your feet and exit your pew to your left and to come forward with your hands cupped and approach somebody holding a plate of bread. When you get close enough, that person will take a piece of bread and press it into your hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Then take that piece of bread, don't eat it, but dip it into the cup. Someone standing right there will be holding a cup, and when you do, that person will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you, and there it is, the reminder of how it is that Christ goes about making peace. And then take and eat and be nourished, your body, your imagination, be nourished, that you too might be a person of peace. And then if you would, I hope you'll find a place to pray. If you come to one of these side padded altars, then someone will meet you there and anoint you with oil because we will understand you to be there for a prayer for healing. It could be physical, mental, emotional, relational, it doesn't matter, but we'll pray for you there. If you want to come to one of these, these kneeling benches up front, we won't assume a thing, but somebody, probably me, will come by and pray with you and just touch you on the, the back, the neck, the shoulder to let you know that you are not alone. You can circle right back around to your seat and pray. God hears those prayers as well. You may want to make a special trip by this little pool of water here, this bowl of water meant to remind you of your baptism where it was made public and made clear that you belong to a peacemaking movement. And if you need to be reminded, this is a good place to do it, and I need to be reminded all the time. Now, who is eligible to come? Well, in this tradition, if you understand your need for grace, that's all it takes. If you understand that you need this kind of grace, that you're incomplete without, of it, without it, then you are welcome at this table. Some of you might say, well, I did something terrible this morning. Yeah, lots of you did. <laughs> it's okay. If you know your need for grace, you are welcome at this table. Do I have to come? No. No. But you're invited to come. You're all invited, but none are compelled. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread and he blessed it and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, including today, in the midst of your storms, in the midst of the wind and the waves, remember me. The same way he took the cup held it up before them and he said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it and you need these resources to make peace, perhaps in your own household, within your family, at work, if you need these resources to make a Christian kind of peace, then just take and drink and remember me. And now all across the sanctuary, if you would, stand to your feet, exit your pew to the left and come forward to receive these gifts of God meant to nourish and resource and encourage the people of God.